chapter 1. Um, I'm going to have you hang there for a little while. Give me a minute. I'm going to get to Romans. I'm going to take us through about 900 passages until we get there. So I just need you to hang out there. Um, well, last time I preached, if anybody can remember that, um, a couple of weeks ago, that's all it was, was a couple of weeks ago. Um, we went through Galatians 5. We talked about the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is this thing that happens to people that have repented of their sins, are following Christ. Is something now after that is being produced in us because the Spirit of the living God, the third person of the Trinity, is living inside of us. And so something comes out of us as it's growing inside of us, and it's called the fruit of the Spirit. So things like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control, these are all things that are growing and developing and coming out of us. And we also not only have fruit, but we also have some fight. So the Holy Spirit also provides us with a way to combat and go against and push against and not fall back into these things that the Bible calls the works of the flesh, which are these sinful behaviors and deeds that were uh, characteristic of us before we knew Christ. Now, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to uh, get to the beginning of that. So we kind of started on the back end, the tail end. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to be talking about this thing called justification by faith alone. It's, it's the doctrine. It's a teaching of the church. It's what gets us to what we talked about a couple of weeks ago, this fruit of the spirit uh, thing that we talked about. What gets us to the fact that Christ is now living inside of us. His righteousness is now dwelling within us. What happens for that to happen? And that's the question that we're asking today. We're going to be talking about justification by faith alone. And really, it's a perfect day for it. Because in about a half an hour, God willing, uh, we're, we're going to be dunking some people in the rather warm, comfortable water that we have prepared for them. And we're going to be doing some baptisms this morning and baptisms is a perfect opportunity for us to talk about what's the basis of these people getting baptized. Why are they getting baptized? What are we masochistic around here? We just like to like dunk people in water in front of everybody, make them read testimonies and, you know, live out their greatest fears. I mean, that's not what we're trying to do here. What's the basis for this thing that we call baptism? Well, it's this. It's justification by faith alone. So we're going to dive into that this morning. And one of the things that we're going to see as we dive into this, and we're going to see this every time that we dive into Scripture, and that is the Bible is confrontational. The Bible is just confrontational. Every time we open God's Word, we are confronted with truth and grace. All right? The Bible's not a menu. We don't get to pick and choose the items most appetizing to us. The Bible doesn't give us that option, right? It's not a menu. It's not hometown buffet. Right? Thank you. I'm really, actually really psyched about that. It's not hometown buffet. It's not Dunkin' Donuts. Right? We don't, we don't have the option. God's word is like a mirror to our hearts. It exposes things. It's like a colonoscopy. For those of you who've experienced that. Yeah, there you go. It gets in there. And it's a good thing. The elders are like, this is your last Sunday, Ronnie. We're just... It's a good thing, though, isn't it? I mean, look, guys, I'm not that far from having to have one of those. I'm not real stoked. I already know it's not going to be a real sweet time for me. But one of the things that it does is it exposes something that might be killing me. So at the end of the day, it's a very good and gracious thing, I think. 
that, that we have done to ourselves. So two results that come from that type of exposure, bringing it back to the Bible, not colonoscopies, but two results that come from this exposure are this, when we dive into Scripture. It either condemns us for our good and bad deeds, this is the result and the effect of God's Word, or it commends us because of the good deeds of Jesus. So those are the two results that come from this confrontational uh, word of God that happens every time we open his word. Man, it either condemns us for our good and our bad deeds, or it commends us because of the good deeds of Jesus. We will stand, listen, we will stand before God and receive justice for either our deeds or for Jesus' deeds. That's it. It's, It's really that simple. The problem the Bible deals with is what do we do with our sin? That's the question for all of us this morning, is what do we do with our sin? All the problems in the world, all of them, there's nothing that falls outside of this category. All the problems in the world, in our hearts, in this church, in this town, in our community, in your job, in our schools, in our homes, it all boils down to sin. It all boils down to sin, from from Hitler to hitting your little sister, all right? The Bible tells us it comes from the same sinful impulses of our heart. And the Bible confronts that problem because it says that's a problem. It says that's a problem. So if you have ever swam uh, in the ocean on the West Coast, which is where I originally came from, you'll notice that the waves are not small. We just spent a couple of weeks on the East Coast and I don't think they know what the word wave means because there just are no waves out there. But what happens is when you're, when you're swimming in the West Coast is that there's this invisible line when you're in the water. And if you're not far enough in, the waves will break on top of you and they will pummel you down into the ocean floor. It's an inevitability. It kind of feels like dying, actually. And sometimes, sometimes you do. Sometimes that actually kills you. Sometimes you die when that happens. But if you're far enough in... If you've kind of crossed this invisible line, the wave will lift you over its peak and you'll come gliding down the other side. Either way, you're going to confront the wave because you're in the water, right? And that's kind of like God's word. It confronts us like that. The question is, what side of the wave are we going to find ourselves on? And that's what we're getting at when we talk about this word justification, justification. Like me, you know, you may have come from a church where they tried so hard to avoid words like justification, right? And it's not that we're trying to build a bunch of academic scholars here this morning, but you know, at the end of the day, um, if the Bible says it and the Bible presents us with key truths and and key words, it's my heart here as the pastor that we know those words, so that when we read these words in Scripture, we understand what it is that God's Word is driving at. Um, you know, at the end of the day, man, we all know how to say supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, right? So I just don't think that we should have any problem as we dive into Scripture, being able to say and articulate and understand the good and gracious words that God gives us uh, in the Bible. So what justification is, is it really is the theme of this redemptive story that we see all the way through the Bible, which is God taking rebellious man and justifying him so that he can have peace 
with him again. Martin Luther, the old reformer, the guy that kick-started the Protestant Reformation, he maintained that this doctrine or this teaching of justification by faith alone is the article on which the church stands or falls. That's how important he thought this was. So by understanding and being able to articulate it, it leads us to some place, doesn't it? It leads us to some place. And again, it doesn't lead to, we don't want it to lead us into just having fatter heads. We want it to lead us into having a sweeter and deeper love for Jesus, a sweeter and deeper love for one another, the church, and the mission God calls us to as the church. All right? Does that make sense? So as we talk about justification, inevitably the word leads us to the word justice. All right? Justification. Right? And justice... And justice is something we all know a little something about. It's something that even if we can't articulate it well, it's something we feel, right? It's something that's built deeply into us. So in other words, the first time you yell, that's not fair, at your brother and sister, or if you're a kid out there today and you just yelled this morning, hey, that's not fair. The first time you did that, what you were really saying, what you were really trying to articulate was that an act of injustice was just committed. Maybe it was. So we're affected by justice. In other words, when we see acts of violence, we see acts of theft, we see acts of immorality, we cry out for consequences. We cry out for justice. We cringe when justice hasn't been served, don't we? I mean, we flipped when O.J. Simpson was declared not guilty. Why? Why did that bother all of us so much? Well, because all of the evidence said that he was guilty. The glove, man, the glove, right? That's what was going on. Some of you guys are like, I don't even know who OJ is. So maybe that's a generational thing. So here's what's interesting about justice. And here's how it hits us practically, okay? We all want justice. You want justice. I want justice. But we want it for the other guy. We want it for everybody but ourselves. Nobody wants justice for themselves. None of you are going to drive to the courthouse tomorrow morning demanding justice because you were driving 10 miles an hour over the speed limit down Main Street after church today. Like, ain't none of y'all going to go out and do that tomorrow. We don't want justice for ourselves. What we want, what we desire is mercy, right? Because we all have a broken relationship with justice. Here's three ways that I think we have a broken relationship with justice. Number one, and some of you don't really think you're that bad. Some of you struggle with believing that justice even ever needs to be applied to you. Maybe you grew up in a Christian home where, you know, high drama was the time mom said darn it after she burned her finger on the stove or something, right? Without realizing it, you tend to judge sins on a curve. You know, it's hard for you to come up with things to repent of. When we talk about repenting of our sins so much at the church, you say, man, I, I know, I know I believe Jesus had to die for my sins. I just don't really think I had that many for him to have to die for. You know, you subconsciously think that. Subconsciously, you think that maybe Jesus only needed to be spanked for your sins. He didn't really need to die for your sins. You think things like this. You think, I know I wasn't born saved, but I practically was. You know, you kind of think that subconsciously. Or number two, maybe you believe you're one of these persons that believes justice applies to everyone out there. Everyone out there, man. That government, those politicians, those thieves, those murderers, those Michigan State fans, those are the people. Those are the people that deserve justice. And so you find yourself in a constant state of kind of this irritable outrage 
because everybody else needs to pay for their sins and what they're doing. You say things like, can you believe what they just did? Did you hear about so-and-so doing what they just did? So maybe that's kind of categorically where you find yourself. Or maybe, maybe you're in a third category where you believe you deserve justice. You're like, no, 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 no. I, I know my past. I know where I've come from. I believe I deserve justice for all the horrible things that I've done. And it's kind of wearing down on me. It's beating down on me. I don't believe there's anything powerful enough to prevent me from having to pay for them. In fact, for you, you can't imagine your guilt ever going away. You believe you don't deserve second chances. That last part is actually true, by the way. But that's the weight that you carry around with you. So this morning, happily, all right, happily, the gospel is the answer and is the hope for all three of these conditions related to justice and to the reality that all of us need to be justified. All of us need to be justified. So what is, what is the word? What is justification? Well, it's simply this. It's to be declared righteous by God. That's it. It's a declaration by God to us, declaring us righteous before him. That's it. I mean, that's not the end of the sermon. Like, we still got to go on a little bit, but, but that's it. Wayne Grudem said this. This is how he defined it. He said, it's a legal act in which he thinks, speaking of God, of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us and declares us to be righteous in his sight. So to understand justification more fully, given that definition, this is what I want to do. I want us to take us through just a very brief, capital B, brief journey through redemptive history. I want us to see how justification is the storyline of the Bible leading up to the cross of Christ where justification even becomes possible, right? So that we can have sort of a a, a moderately full view of this, right? So what we like to do is start in the beginning when we talk talk about this redemptive story of Scripture. And we do that a lot here. We, We like to tie that in. And the beginning is the story that Adam and Eve decided to commit treason against God by eating of the fruit of the tree that they've forbidden to eat. In Genesis 2.17, God said this to them when he laid out all the trees, he made them gardeners, he brought them together, he gave them their job. He said, in the day that you eat of this tree that I've forbidden you to eat from, you will surely die. He just lays it out to them. Amazingly enough, they eat the fruit, but they didn't die the day that they ate the fruit. So what we see here from the very beginning is that man sinned and God's first response is mercy, not giving them what they deserve. And in fact, God goes a step further in Genesis 3 by making garments of skin and clothing them. Because what happened now is there's a shame. There's a shame that got introduced into Adam and Eve. They sinned. They saw themselves as naked. They saw themselves as exposed before God. God had to cover them because God can't have that kind of contact in his holiness with sinful human beings. So God graciously kills an animal, makes them some clothing because before that they were just freewheeling, you know, organic couples here just wandering around without clothing. God clothes them after that. So in the beginning, man rebelled against God. God has mercy. God has grace by killing an animal to provide them with a temporary covering for their shame. So in this, we see that this animal, whatever it was, it atoned, it made amends for them, 
for their sins. It served as the propitiation. There's a really fun word, propitiation, which means it satisfied the wrath that God could have had on them by covering temporarily their shame and their sin. So what we don't want to do from the very beginning as we look at this storyline of the Bible, redemption to justification, we don't want to mistake the seriousness of Adam and Eve's sin. We don't want to mistake it. It was an act of treason and rebellion. But at the same time, we want to look at the sin itself. Look at the actual act, the physical act of the sin itself. Was it violent? Was that a violent thing that they did? Was it the manifestation of the most evil act ever designed by mankind? Not really. See, because what happens is here when we talk about needing to be justified for our sins is that we make categories for sin. We default into making categories for sin. But the first sin ever committed by a man and woman was that they had a snack that was forbidden to them. Do you guys get that? The seriousness of the sin was not the sin itself as much as it was the heart that produced the sin. And what this does is it absolutely just slays our categories, our default categories for sin, doesn't it? Like it reduces all sin to acts of rebellion against God that originate in the heart. So what we see here, what we see clearly here is that instead... Of wiping out Adam and Eve, God devises a plan to send someone to reconcile sinners back to himself. So he lets the human race continue on. And what he eventually does is he eventually calls a man named Abraham. Because what he wants to do is he wants to establish a people for himself. And this people ends up becoming the Israelites. Who originated with Abraham. and who ended Because Abraham was a guy who trusted in God's promises. So God calls Abraham. Abraham establishes a nation. God establishes a nation through uh, Abraham. And this is the people that he was going to use eventually to introduce Christ to cover the sin problem of all mankind. Because God didn't ignore the sin problem. He calls Abraham. He creates a people. He chooses a people for himself. But he didn't ignore the sin problem. When he delivered his chosen people who had gotten themselves into slavery hundreds of years later, he actually required something to atone for their sins. He actually required that the sacrifice of animals be made to make amends for the sins of his people. In fact, in Leviticus, an Old Testament book, it says, for the life of the flesh, this is God talking, is in the blood. And he said, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood, the blood that makes atonement by the life. So God required blood to make amends for the sins that we committed that rebelled against him. This was the sacrifice necessary for God's people to be what we call justified before God. The problem was that this was only a temporary solution. When we get into the book of 1 Samuel, we read about Samuel saying, Has the Lord great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, these atonements that we're talking about? Does he have as much delight in that as he has in obeying his voice? And he said, no, actually, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. And to listen to the voice of God is better than sacrificing the fat of rams. So what we see here is that ultimately what God is calling us to is obedience. That's what he desires more than anything else. But we fall short. Hebrews 10 says, here's the problem. 
It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away our sins. It's not good enough. So, all through the Old Testament, you see God's chosen people just time after time turning their backs on God. The book of Judges tells us this. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Like, if you have an infant or toddler, like, you literally know exactly what I'm talking about right now. You live through this every day. David says, when we get to the Psalms, King David said, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And then David goes on to say in another Psalm, The fool says in his heart, given all of this, all right, given all that we just laid out, this is what David says about us. He says, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. Uh uh. I'm not buying this whole, I have a sin problem, I need to be justified situation. He said, the fool says in their heart, there is no God. And he said, and they are corrupt because they think that. They do abominable deeds because there is none, this is David speaking, that do good. Not a lot of subtlety right there with our boy Davy. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. And this is what he finds when he looks down. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good. And this is how he wraps it up. Not even one. Not even one. He looks down. He doesn't even see one dude. Doesn't even see one woman that does good. And the problem with that is that God is holy. And he demands obedience. He demands perfect obedience. We can't stand before God in the state of unrighteousness that we're in. The prophet Isaiah said this when he was standing before God. He said, woe is me, for I am lost. He said, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I mean, so Isaiah's life is just ruined when he comes face to face with the presence of God. And again, these are just men. These are just men and women like us. So the picture we see here is that mankind has a sin problem. Big sin, little sin, all sin is big enough that it requires payment before God. In fact, James, in the book of James, it says, for whoever keeps the whole law, whoever keeps all of God's commandments, but fails in one point, Like, let's just say you're one of these dudes that was able to keep it all the way perfect until that one guy cut you off on Main Street and you honked the horn out of anger. You need just as much of Christ's righteousness laid to your account as a guy that just lived a life of havoc and chaos and just abominable sins. That's what James is saying right here. But fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. Man, so mankind is, uh, is doomed. Mankind is doomed unless someone who is without sin can atone for all of us with sin. David says in Psalm 130, he says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities. In other words, if you kept a tally of our sins, who could stand? And the answer is, is nobody. Nobody could stand. But what happens eventually is God delivers on the promise he made to Adam and Eve. And he sends his son, Jesus, who comes rolling into the New Testament with what we call the good news of the gospel. Jesus is born. He lives a perfect, obedient life in obedience and love to his father. He lives the life that is impossible for us. 
in our sin to have any hope of living. And in fact, one of the ways Jesus is described is by the prophet John the Baptist, who was kind of a precursor to Jesus, who kind of paved the way for Jesus' ministry. And he makes this statement in the Gospel of John when he sees Jesus roll up. He looks at him and he says, Behold the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. That's how he describes Jesus when Jesus comes rolling in to start his public ministry. And don't you see how that kind of connects to everything? That's the connector. Jesus now becomes the connector to all of these Old Testament sacrifices that had to be made by God's people to atone for their sins. Jesus now is the sacrificial animal, the sacrificial lamb from the Old Testament, one that needed to be sacrificed so that our sins could be taken away and blotted out and we could someday reunite with God and restored harmony and glory. And we see John talk about this in his gospel, for he said this, listen to this encouraging news. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And then he says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. So see how that just connects with everything we just heard David say about being born and conceived in sin. He's condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. This is, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. He's talking about mankind there. He's not like looking at like three guys and saying, it's just you three. And then later in chapter 3, Jesus says... Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Because this is a person that has not been justified. So the redemptive story culminates with Jesus. Jesus lives, dies, rises, ascends to God. Everyone who repents Everyone who turns from sins, everyone who puts their trust in Jesus receives remission from sins, receives reconciliation with God. So that's kind of a little picture of the redemptive journey that we... It was more of like a drive through Ashland, let's be honest. It was a very short journey, but that gives you a picture of kind of where we started and where we get to with Jesus. And what we learn in this, all right, what we learn is that there are no good people. There are no good people, all right? I know what the sign says on the water tower on Claremont, world headquarters of nice people. I see that. I see that every day when I drive by it, all right? Now, let me qualify, all right? Now, people can be nice, but nobody's good. Nobody's inherently good. Nobody is born good. Nobody achieves any inherent goodness or righteousness that is good or righteous enough to make Christ's death on the cross, unnecessary for them. Nobody has that kind of stuff. And it's not based on quantity either because nobody can do enough good things, right? It's kind of like, you ever bitten to a rotten apple? Like an apple that just looked beautiful on the outside. I mean, no amount of polishing and cleaning the skin of a rotten apple is going to change that, Right? There's something wrong on the inside, but it's a beautiful piece of fruit. Ronnie, look at it. Now the core is rotten, though. The core is rotten. So what I want to do now, since you guys have turned to Romans about two hours ago, 
is I want to look now, I want to bring this home for us, all right? I want to look at Romans to see how Christ's justification works for us. And we're just going to go through a couple of passages. Again, we could spend all day unpacking these. We don't have that kind of time. But this will give you a picture of how Christ's justification works for us. We're going to start in chapter 1, and I'm going to start with verse 16. And this is the Apostle Paul talking in his letter to Rome. And he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. All right? So, so Paul just lays it out. That's the effect of the gospel. It is the power of the gospel uh, for salvation to everyone who believes. That's it. He doesn't add anything to that. The gospel is the power of salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. So this wasn't something that only gets applied to God's chosen people, the Jewish nation in the Old Testament. This now spreads to everybody. This spreads to us. Also to the Greek would be us. I don't know if you're Greek or not, but that just means us. Uh, Verse 17, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. So this is where we start talking about justification by faith alone. And as it is written, the righteous, the righteous, those who now can stand before God as righteous people, that righteousness comes by Christ, but through faith alone. All right, let's go up to chapter three, verse 21. And it continues and says this, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. And we talk about the law. Again, it brings us back to the Old Testament. It brings us back to the Ten Commandments. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And then he goes on to say, for there is no distinction. Right? You notice kind of, a, kind of a common theme in the language there about this being applicable to everybody. So, so we don't get to like talk our way out of this. He says, there is no distinction, verse 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who God put forward as a propitiation, as a satisfactory sacrifice, that's what that means, by his blood to be received by faith. And then he says this, this was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. And it was to show his righteousness in the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So what we see is that there's an exclusivity now. That means when we are justified through the righteousness of Christ, we don't get to add anything to it. It's by having faith in that work, that finished work of Christ, that gives us any justification before God. That's all we have before God is a foreign righteousness that is put on, placed on our account, and we receive it by faith, believing that God is true, that God is true to save us through Christ's righteousness. Let's go to Romans 5, 1. Kind of gives us a little bit of the conclusion of this justification by faith alone for believers. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, because through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and now we rejoice in hope of the glory of God, and we can go on and on and on. So faith is our personal trust that clings to Christ alone for salvation. The act of being saved is this, all right? The righteousness of Christ is imputed, which is a word that means transferred to us the minute 
that we put our faith in Jesus Christ alone. So what happens was our guilt, the guilt of our sin was transferred to Christ, and then Christ's righteousness was imputed or transferred to us. And so what that means is Jesus, he atoned. He made amends for our sins. He became the sacrifice, the satisfying sacrifice for our sins, meaning he became the offering to satisfy God's wrath. Because remember, what happened in the beginning? We rebelled. We committed treason. Here's the results. Let's go Romans 8, verse 1. Here's the result of somebody who has put their faith in Christ alone and been justified. There is therefore now. Do you get that? Let me just stop right there. There is therefore now. If you've put your faith in Christ alone, that now applies to now. You know what that means in the Greek right there? It means now. It means today, the second. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Amen. Again, we can keep going on and on and on. And I think I am. Verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Verse 4. In order that the righteous requirement of the law, everything we just talked about, might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to to the spirit. Now you see how that connects us to the fruit of the spirit from two weeks ago. When now we are not condemned, now we are walking in the spirit and now we are exhibiting and we are showcasing the fruit of the spirit. So as we close today, why does any of this matter? Who cares about this? How does being declared righteous before God, change how you live. Because you're in one of those categories. You just don't really think you're that much of a sinner. You think everybody else is a sinner. Or you think, no, 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 Martin, I am the sinner. I'm that guy. How does being declared righteous before God change how you live? How does it change you? Well, Galatians 5.1 says this very simply. For freedom, Christ has set you free. For freedom, Christ has set us free. We understand this when we look back to the Old Testament and we read how the Israelites were delivered from Egypt and they were brought into the promised land. It was for freedom that Christ delivered his people out of bondage under the slavery of Egypt. For us, it's out of the bondage under the slavery of our sin. And what I want us to do, what I, how I want us to see this, because there's been a lot and I packed way too much into our time. I get, I'm going to repent for that eventually, but that's where we're at right now. But here's the big idea. What I want you to see is God in this. I want you to see that you have assurance that by Christ alone, you have his righteousness. Your sins are forgiven. You are not condemned. Because do you see the character of God in this? Do you see his desire here for you as we went through all of these 
passages, he wants to deliver us from bondage. He wants to deliver us from oppression, from condemnation, from guilt, from fear. Because we struggle. You struggle with that. Because you're guilty. You wouldn't struggle with it if you weren't guilty. And you are guilty. As am I. He didn't free anybody from Egypt in the Old Testament that didn't need to be freed. He frees us. And we're either blind to this because we haven't been justified by Christ alone yet or we become dull to this like the Galatian church did, which is why Paul had to write a letter to the Galatians and said, what is happening? What happened? Why are you trying to add to what only Christ can do? So we become dull. We don't take our sin very seriously. We create categories. We're shruggy. We shrug things off. Whenever we try to justify ourselves, you know what we're doing? We're saying something untrue about God. We're saying that we define his holiness, not him. We're saying his grace does only half the job. It's a partial grace. So let me just say right now, all right? When we talk about the righteousness of Christ being transferred to your account by faith because of the work of Christ on the cross, let me just say that there is nothing bigger or more dramatic that could possibly take place in your life. All the significance that you seek in life can be found in Christ's death on the cross. I mean, imagine Jesus coming to your door, introducing himself and telling you that the greatest dream you could ever have, one that was too great for you to even dream, was possible because he died to make it so. Imagine Jesus telling you that everything you could ever truly want is contained in his righteousness, which, which can be yours through repentance and belief and faith in him. Because you know what justification means for us in the day-to-day? It means this. It means that we're never alone. It means that we're courageous like Christ. It means that we're hopeful like Christ. It means that we forgive like Christ. It means that we're generous like Christ. It means that we have love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control like Christ because we've been justified like Christ. It's like when we left for Florida a couple of weeks ago, man. It was funny. We're cracking up because we're driving through town and there's like no leaves on any of the branches. It's like May 1st and it still just looks all wintry out, Right? And we're just going, okay, it's Ohio. You never know what you're going to get. It's going to stay winter all through the summer. I don't know what's going on. And then yet, when we returned, everything was leafy. It was bare when we left. It was leafy when we returned. Life had taken place. There was a blooming effect because life had been injected into those branches. Which means... They can produce fruit now. That is justification by faith alone. We are declared righteous because of the good and gracious work of Jesus. We're going to see that right now. 
we're going to see one of the ways that God told us, that Jesus told us very specifically to illustrate that justification is through, through baptism. So we're going we're gonna to baptize five of our people. It's going to be awesome. You guys can get closer. We're gonna, it's going to be loud. It's going to be chaotic because that's how we like to roll around here. But what you're seeing is you're seeing justification by faith alone in progress. That's what you're seeing in baptism. So let me pray, and we're going to do that. Lord, thank you for this great truth. We don't have to die in our sins. Lord, thank you for Christ. Thank you for his obedience to you. Thank you that because he came down, because he was obedient to the point of death, because he died, because you raised him again, because he is with you today, Lord, we can have peace with you if we trust in that work on the cross. Lord, I pray this, I pray this isn't, I pray this is something that you clear in our minds and in our hearts. For those of us that have heard this for many years, let it be something that gives us just a new burst of hope and rejoicing in us. For those who have never heard, for those who have been in church for 20 years and have never heard this articulated, Lord, I pray that they would understand this and it would give them hope. They would understand your promises. They would understand your sufficiency. They would understand your love and your grace for them. And Lord, for those who have never heard this before, Lord, I pray that you can break through all of my crazy words and my lack of great communication. And Lord, your word, the words that we read, the only important words that were spoke this morning, Lord, you would use those like the edge of a sword, Lord, to open hearts, to receive that faith and that justification and that righteousness that can only come from repenting of our sins and believing in Christ. So Lord, if somebody is there today, I pray that you would speak to them, that you would change them. And Lord, we want to thank you for these baptisms, these evidences of this work of grace and faith in the lives of people that you have called to be your own. We're grateful for that. We rejoice in that. And we pray that you would bless them as they obediently proclaim your name right now in the water. And all God's people said,